Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBND Health family. Welcome to the Gut Check Project. I'm Eric Rieger, joined by this guy, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, who is joining us today? Oh, I'm excited. This is a really, really cool episode. We have Dr. Jessica Rose. So, Jessica Rose, she is a flamenco dancer, surfer, and just so happens to be super smart with a bunch of degrees. She's a Canadian researcher with a degree in applied mathematics, a master's in immunology, and a PhD in computational biology. She is an expert in data analysis, particularly she has had an interest as it has pertained to the VAERS data, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And she is gracious enough to join us with her cat, Checkpoint. So, Jessica, welcome to the Gut Check Project. Thanks. I liked that intro because it started with the important stuff. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know if this is true, but it seems like your passions have taken you around the world and the degrees have followed as a as a consequence of your passions. Yeah, pretty much. That's not a bad way to put it, actually. Although I am very passionate about um, finding it. It's all interlinked, right? I, I like to know how things work. And, uh, you know, academia isn't a perfect world, but it it is good for the structure. Like you used to go to classrooms and have professors and the classrooms were, the classes were small. Sometimes you even got like, one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, learning sessions. So, um, yeah, you actually, when you focus in, like uh, hardcore immunology, for example, like doing a course in immunology is very different from doing a degree. So you get a lot of, like, um, focused attention on, on things that no one's ever heard of. But it really helps you to understand this, um, which also helps you to serve. Um, so it's all connected. Um, it, it all comes back to uh, being the best, you know, uh, person inside the sack of water that you can be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, but you're right about the, um, there, there's like a sine wave uh, of things that I do. And it seems like the the period's like three, wa uh, three waves. Um uh, three, uh, years I was trying to say. <laughs> so I like kind of having an attention span of about three years for study. And then I have to kind of do something, um, non-cerebral. So, uh, but they, it really works together. It's, it's, uh, it's one and the same for me, um, patterns and rhythms and, um, yeah. The data stuff I'm doing now is a little different from uh, from what I've ever done, but I really enjoy it because it. it um, the reason I started doing this, by the way, was because um, they declared the pandemic, and I had just finished my last postdoc in um, biochemistry, and so I had planned a surfing trip uh, to showcase my talent for the WSL in Australia. And of course, my trip was supposed to be in March 2020, which is when they declared this pandemic. So I had to cancel. So, you know, I needed to do something constructive so I didn't get really sad. And uh, so I decided to teach myself how to use R, which is a statistical programming language. So that kind of segued me into looking at VAERS data as a way to constructively teach myself how to use R. So I'm not a programmer at all, not at all, but I, I want to be. So it's like, it's, it's leading me toward, uh, this, this higher level, um, way, I suppose, to not only pull patterns out of data, but maybe, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just another way of doing it. That's a little bit more focused that, uh, that I'm trying to see as uh, one of those silver linings in all of this. <laughs> well, so, so to go back three years and you even mentioned that you have basically a birth of three years for these, these patterns and passions to kind of coexist together, which I think is a really, actually a really cool way to, to live one's life is to have these pursuits. And then you kind of master them and move on. What was it specifically though, around bears data as it began to kind of present itself uh, one probably most people who will even view this didn't ever really consider VAERS as a database or knew that it existed as a database. So 
How did it make its presence known to you? And then how did you begin to detect that there was something there for you to look at? Yeah, good question, because I, I had no idea about anything related to a pharmacovigilance database. I didn't even know the word pharmacovigilance. Um, so when I started to see, like, I, I learned in about 10 days from when they started using the word zoonotic pathogen that what was happening in the world wasn't about a zoonotic pathogen and a deadly virus. It was about a, a system of control being imposed and enforced. It was real clear. Um, and so I thought to myself, well, what's 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 the end game here? What, what am I hearing the most? What are they trying to do? Well, apparently, according to them later, you know, later on that that year, all we started to hear was this one-track-minded solution of a vaccine. So I'm like, oh dear, because you know, then you st we we started learning pretty quickly that this wasn't going to be a, well. You know, the community of people who looks at this stuff started learning that this wasn't going to be a conventional vaccine. It was going to be something very different. Um, uh, it's like mRNA transfection, which is completely different. So I thought this is probably not going to go well because they didn't test this long enough. So that's kind of where my thought process was. So I thought probably a good idea to start hunting around because I was looking for a data set, right? Um, just any data set to play with art. And so I thought, um, since everything, everything, everything you see here, whatever is COVID this and COVID that, I thought I should start looking at the adverse event data sets um, that were available to look at. And mm -hmm. so there's the yellow card, there's the UDRA, there's the Dane, there's uh, a couple others, and then there's VAERS, which is the one, oh, and there's the Canadian one, CAFIS. Um, the only one that was uh, readily downloadable as a CSV file for anyone to analyze, which I really appreciate, by the way, it's the only thing I appreciate from the owners of the data. <laughs> um, uh, it was there. So uh, ever since 1990, they've had this, this pharmacovigilance tool available to the public where um, you can report an adverse event in the context of um, primarily biologicals, which are vaccines. Um, and, you know, they're they're saying that uh, more people are using the fair system now because more people are aware of it since this COVID nonsense started. But even if that's true, VAERS is still highly underreported. So having said that, even in January 2021, which was like if you go to the end of January, which is about six weeks after the initial rollout in the States, um, you have what you would consider a reasonably loud safety signal coming out of VAERS for deaths. Uh, not reasonably loud, very loud. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. So um, I have it on good uh, authority and information that, you know, it's it's supposed to be the case in the context of some kind of therapy, whether it be a pharmaceutical agent or a biological agent, that um, if it starts killing people, you have to stop putting it into people. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? Especially if it's a preventative thing. If even one person dies, I think that an investigation should be done. If 50 people die, usually they pull the product. If 700 people die, it's really time to do something whether it be a causality assessment, PRR analysis, Bayesian analysis, whatever you got to do, um, it's time to do that. So the people who are meant to be doing that are the owners of this data set, which are the HHS, the CDC, and the FDA. And, and the WHO have traditionally um, done these causality assessments. Uh, back in 1999, when a handful of intussusception cases, which is like folding over of the bowel in children, was um, emitting a safety signal, just a, a weak one from VAERS, um, causality assessment was done immediately. And it was determined that of the six... Um, 
um, diagnoses that you can make, a, a diagnosis of very likely was given to uh, that these products, the rotavirus vaccine was causing the intussusception. So they pulled it. That's the way it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I was agreeing with you. Yeah, so VAERS works. Um, I recently gave a presentation of some VAERS slides to um, five members of the European Parliament in Brussels, which was a surreal experience. Um, And that was one of the three things I really wanted to make clear, uh, because there's a lot of, um, I'm just going to use the word, it's it's miss or mal or whatever information uh, about VAERS on the go right now. VAERS works. But you got to use it. You got to actually look inside the data to find something in the data. So, so nobody's looking. I was going to put a little bit of context about it because number one, thank you for the breakdown. Uh, that's actually a great step-by-step uh, walkthrough. Just some context behind some of the references that you made. Um, one of them specifically, and I know that we can talk about this at length, is going to be explaining the calculated underreporting factor. You talked about the numbers that exist within VAERS, but obviously we need to talk about how you are able to apply previous research, some of it even done by Harvard, on how people can calculate what the underreporting factor actually is. And then the other, if you don't mind, is talk about when they compare things like rotavirus and other uh, uh, rotavirus vaccines and other vaccines, and you even mentioned that this mRNA platform in and of itself is very, very new. Other vaccines, we were kind of more or less told, just trust this vaccine. We've always trusted vaccines for years, but what gets lost is this particular delivery system, the mRNA was brand new. And as you pointed out, this gave a signal to you before there were even data signals that something should be paid attention to to see if this is a safe way to administer. So would you mind kind of going through both of those? Um, yeah, if I can remember what you asked. <laughs> oh, sorry about underreporting factor. Kidding. My memory is bad, but it's not that bad. So the underreporting, um, yes, it has been studied. Uh, Harvard Pilgrim people did this. They... Uh, in a specific um, situation, they found the underreporting factor was 1% to 10%. So I personally think that it's um, it's probably closer to 30, between 30 and 40 for in the, in the COVID context. I actually calculated an underreporting factor, which came to 31, which means you have to multiply whatever uh, severe adverse event in this case by 31. Um, I used the Pfizer phase three clinical trial data, uh, severe adverse event rate. So I always use their data so that when they come back or if they want to come to me and say, no, 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 I'm like, yeah, yeah, look, it's yours. I just use your data and I made an approximation using your other data. So, um, it's, it's not unlikely that it's close to 31, um, but we don't really know. And another important thing that people should think about is the underreporting factor is probably going to be um, unique to each adverse event, quite frankly. I mean, death and chills are going to have very different uh, underreporting factors. Death will be far less underreported, you think, because it's more severe. Um, so, you know, the death underreporting factors. I don't know, probably close to six, I would guess, just pulling something out of the air. But uh, I wouldn't say it would exceed 10. But still, having said all that, the numbers in VAERS in the context of the COVID shots, and there's only four products on the market besides the bivalent crap. There's the Moderna, the Pfizer, the Janssen, and the Novavax in the, the United States. And we are up to 1.5. No, we're over 1.5 adverse event um, reports. Now, this is people. This isn't the reports file. This is people. 1.5 million, correct? 1.5 million. Yeah, 1.5 million. So these are people who have reported something going wrong. And I really want to stress this for people who aren't getting it. It takes a lot of time to file a VAERS report. It's... uh, It's... um, you can go to jail if you do it fraudulently, okay? So these these are also highly vetted. 
And there's also a, a too few people doing the vetting, according to my sources. So my point is, if you manage to get a a, a temporary VERS ID switch to an, uh, a VERS ID, which is the process that you go through when you file, you're, you're away to the races and you've done something that a lot of people haven't managed to, to do. It's not nothing to get a VARES report into the system on the front end that I download to analyze. So 1.5 million plus people have managed this. And the reason this is really, really striking for another thing that people might not know is that for the past 30 years, 30 years, that's not of too few years to matter, uh, for all the vaccines combined, and that's a lot of products when you consider the childhood schedule. Um, the average total number of adverse event reports for the year, for each year, was 39,000. So think about that. You have 39,000 total reports for all the vaccines combined. That includes, you know, uh, whatever you want to think about. But in addition to the fact that you're comparing 39,000 to 1.5 million, you also have to consider the range of adverse events that are being reported. So in the past 30 years, the average number of um, types of adverse event reports is something like 5,000. So of a possible 25,000 different medra codes, preferred term, we call them, which is just basically the thing that describes what happened, like myocarditis or death or whatever. Um, and in the COVID context, we're using over 14,000. So that was obvious to me when I first started looking at this back in January 2021, because I noticed already, already in the data that there was a clustering of, of types of adverse events like cardiovascular, neurological, hepatological, immunological. So I was like, whoa, this is real comprehensive reporting of adverse events. So there must be something systemic going on here. There must be a, a, a node of problematic uh, position, let's call it. And I thought it must be the immune system. There has to be something going wrong with Tregs or something. I don't know. Anyway, I won't get into that. But um, so the underreporting factor is important to consider, but we don't need it in the context of COVID because the numbers are already incredibly high. Um, what was the second question? I lost my. Uh... Oh, actually, that was awesome on the on the underreporting factor. So oh. ultimately, and just and just to back you up, uh, Steve Kirsch, whenever he wrote to John Sue, actually had mentioned that his calculation put it at a factor of forty one, effectively for all adverse events uh, related to COVID injectables, you could utilize a factor of. 41 to multiply it by, and that should be more reflective of, of all issues. So thank you for the breakdown on URF. Um, so, the, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just want to ask this. So, I mean, you're, you're sharing some pretty shocking numbers. So if all the years that it's been there, 39,000 adverse events to include anything from a mild fever to all these things, and then what you're describing is a jump to 1.5 million, that is shocking in itself, but then also the different types of adverse events covering most organ systems. I mean, I mean, there's obviously now we know more about the mRNA. Here's the thing that's really interesting is that we're talking to you and you're the first person to bring this to light. Your ability to, to download raw data, put it in a palatable way, and then give it back to the public when... If this whole system is owned by the HHS and the CDC and the, and the FDA, the onus is on them to say, oh, look, here, we're a publicly controlled, but we're not hearing anything. It's crickets. That's the that's why I was so excited to have you on the show, because all you're doing 100 percent. Yeah. <laughs> because what you've done is you just took the raw data. You didn't let anybody else, unlike a nice pharmaceutical study that gets FDA approval, they don't give raw data. They give their interpretation of the data. You're just taking the raw data and saying, this is what we found. So interesting. But <laughs> I have to burst a bit of a bubble here. Um, this is the data that we're allowed access to. Okay. There are probably three different books. This is oh, the boy. book that we're allowed access to. Yeah. 
This is the tip of the iceberg book, in my opinion. We know that more demographic data is collected that we don't have as a variable. Like there are up to 52 variables that you have access to in, in any person's uh, VAERS ID. So you have age, state, product, blah, blah. You have like 52 different things, but they have more. They they might even have up to 70. Who knows? They have more... Um, they have all the control over what's released. Uh, it's very complicated, and I'm not really even blaming anyone because it's an antiquated system, and I think that the people who... There, I think there are people working hard. Don't get me wrong. I just think that it's like all all the things that are going through, um, let's put it, growing pains. Um, there are always suckers who end up suffering, which is probably what the people who are vetting VAERS data are going through. Um, having said that, what you said is so right on, which is why I held up 100%, because the onus is on the owners of the data, not only to, to do these anal uh, analyses, but to prove, because you, you guys have heard this, correlation doesn't prove causation. I mean, they're so, they've even vamped up the website with new words telling losers like me why you can't use VAERS data to, to make any assessment of anything, especially not causation. But the thing is, okay, fine. You guys have to do it, though. You have to prove that there isn't a causal effect. I don't have to prove that there is, even though I have, using Bradford Hill. You guys, not you guys, but they have to prove there is no causal effect. So that's really important. And I think everyone can understand that. It's like, here we have a situation that is unprecedented in every way you can think. The technology is unprecedented. The number of people that were injected with is unprecedented. Um, these lockdown things globally are unprecedented. Um, the uh, the mortality rates, excess mortality rates are unprecedented. Uh, the number of adverse events being reported across the world in all the pharmacovigilance databases are unprecedented and they match. Like the yellow card system, the UDRA and VAERS, they all have millions of reports. Um, so it's like, I, I forgot what I was saying again. <laughs> I told you my memory is bad, but it's it just to build a comparison for everyone. And this is probably, this is kind of where I was going with talking about older styled or different styled M than MRNA platformed vaccines is kind of give us a comparison of when did the FDA or CDC take action to to withhold or hold back a previous vaccine? Like what was the signal? How many people had to suffer a particular adverse event for them to withhold it compared to the numbers that you've demonstrated today with the mRNA vaccines and, and nothing was done for so long? There's no comparison. Like um, I, it's a handful of the interception cases that I mentioned before. And by handful, I, I'm, don't quote me on this. I'm going to take a shot in the dark. It was less than 50 for sure. 50, so was, like total, was, 50. Yeah, it was right. just a cluster. And I think the reason that they, they saw it as a signal was that it was in kids. So I think that was the, the beep, beep, beep that made them go, oh, crap, that's not good. Um, now, that's just the signal. So what had to happen next was that they had to do the causality assessment, which is basically going through these Bradford Hill criteria that I mentioned. There are 10. And according to the WHO's diagnostic criteria, I think you have to satisfy six, maybe five. So if you can, like temporality, one thing has to precede the other, the shorter the time frame between this and this happening, the likelier the causative effect, these kinds of things you have to satisfy. So they did that assessment and and five or six criterion criteria were satisfied so i don't know how long after it was that they pulled the product but i don't think it was very long because you know if you wait a day a certain number you know of more kids might be a risk and they knew then that there was a potential danger so you know, once you know, if you keep doing it, knowing there's a potential risk of harm, that's really bad for you. Um, you could get sued and stuff like that. So um, 
there's no comparison between that and this, no matter what you pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone knows what Guillain-Barre syndrome is now. Everyone knows what Ball's palsy is. Everyone knows what myocarditis is. Everyone knows what, uh, you know, um, quartzfold Jakob disease is now. I mean, I guess they did before, but it's like all of these um, these things that no one had heard of are like common speak now. Be- and there's a reason for that. <laughs> it's like yeah. no one seems to be connecting the reasons. <laughs> but it's like, hey, I know. Something happened in 2021 that was different, that didn't happen before, that probably instigated this. (laughs) So, I liked your logic. Well, with your logic, when you said, I think one of the reasons why they paid attention is because it was happening to kids. So in this case, I could see them in a boardroom going, hey, we're having lots of adverse reactions. So like, is it only kids? It's like, well, it's kids and it's healthy people and it's sick people and it's old people also. They're like, but it's not just kids, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just keep going. I mean, with that logic, because this one. Except in myocarditis, because the prevalence of the cases that were being reported following dose two, which is clear causation signal, was in 15 year old boys. Yeah. That's why you hear them going ding, 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 about myocarditis. But you'll also notice that they follow that up very shortly with it's mild and transient. Don't worry about it. We have all these drugs that your kid can be on for life in case it happens. I mean, are you kidding me? You're normalizing myocarditis in a child, really? So, yeah, it's. (laughs) I think you're right about the boardroom meetings. (laughs) Well, and then, I mean, I also think that, so um, I've had colleagues who have tried to file VAERS reports, and it's really interesting because, number one, it takes longer than they thought. And then, you know, we're seeing patients, right? So it's like, well, I start a report. I go to see a patient. When I come back, if you don't do anything in like a few minutes, it kicks you off and you got to start over. Exactly. That's the thing. I'm so glad you know about it because it's so obnoxious. Yeah, they're doing everything possible. So when you talk about underreporting and I'm as a physician, I have seen many people. And so what I end up seeing is a lot of people that will have something truly unique. Oh, I don't know. Transverse myelitis, for instance, which I've never thought about until in the last three weeks. I've, you know, we've met two people with that. Yeah. And having to look at this person and go, oh, wow. And they've been gaslit so much that they did not want to bring it up. And I'm like, oh, no, this is clearly this is there's more of this than you realize because it's not being if it is being reported it's not being shared in an easy manner the onus of getting it out there to everybody and yeah all of it just makes me think that it is absolutely like you said tip of the iceberg because rampant how how old were these people with transverse myelitis in their 50s like healthy 50s like young 50s like active you know, like that time of their life where they're excited to their businesses are doing well. They're excited to travel. Their their kids are in college kind of thing. And, you know, just this real prime of life thing. You've done everything right to this point and now you're disabled. Well, one, one is a, uh, one is a, uh, an orthopedic surgeon who no longer practices oh, because he can't. Kidding. No, you're kidding. Yeah. He, uh, six days after his dose and, uh, he woke up with numb feet. And then they attempted to, uh, well, he attempted to fight through it. And then they recommended that he what, wait three months or something similar like that uh, to see if he could go back. And he's like, I, I held off two weeks. But after that, he just began to experience uh, progressive fatigue and, and other symptoms. And then ultimately, he's uh, 100% uh, vaccine injured. So, uh, yeah. And he's, he's in he Wisconsin. Surgery anymore at all? He does not. Oh my God, that's yeah. so heartbreaking. Horrible. You know, oh. that's not the first freaking person I've heard say this. That's what's heartbreaking. I mean, I hear this all the time, and it's like everyone's hearing it all the time. And it's, I, it's, I mean, it's just a matter of time before these people have to bloody roll over. I mean, you can't keep denying this. Like, are you kidding me? Do you know it's- what I think is really funny? Also, is that if you go through the trouble of filling out your VARES report. And your VAERS report happens to say that, oh, you had a fever of, let's say, 102 or something like that or whatever, you know, mild symptoms. Um, But then two months later, you have transverse myelitis. Two months later, you have a severe something. 
you go back, you can't change the VAERS reports. Once it's in there as that person, Bingo. they make Bingo. that part difficult. So you can't even update it. I have it on good authority that that is not a mis by mistake. Hmm. So listen to this. Listen to this. A lot of people have submitted VAERS reports and I, I couldn't figure out why they would do this for the longest time. And I might be wrong. It's just an idea. But I, I mean, like thousands of people have maybe even tens of thousands. I have to check. Let's just say thousands for now. Submit a, a, a VAERS adverse event report of no adverse event. And I'm like, and nothing what? else. And I'm like, wait now, why, why would you go to the trouble? Why would anyone go to the trouble to do this? So I'm like, maybe in the vetting process, something was changed. Maybe they didn't read the symptom text and draw out the actual problem that, that occurred. Um, but then I then my source told me, one of my various uh, inner circle people told me that if you try to update your VAERS report, it will never happen. So think about it. If that person had actually suffered a myocarditis event and got written in as no adverse event and they die, that's never going to be written down as myocarditis or death. So this is another way that um, we're losing signals. And again, I really want to reiterate this. Despite all these problems and shenanigans, intentional and not, we still have all of these signals. It's it's that's the part that that drives me crazy. That this isn't we're not on the fence here. There's no fence. The fence is like out of sight. <laughs> <laughs> what? We are like way out in the field. <laughs> you you and uh, Dr. Peter McCullough actually collaborated to kind of bring some attention to the severity specifically around myocarditis. And he, this is a well published many many times over uh, 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 cardiac is he is he a cardiac surgeon or a cardiac uh, or cardiologist? cardiologist? He's a cardiologist yeah. and an epidemiologist. So, uh, given all of his credential and the many papers that he's published, kind of describe the experience on what happened. And I think the title of your paper was something along the lines of myocarditis adverse events in the United States uh, in relation to the VAERS uh, associated with COVID nineteen injectables. So, except you're missing one key word in that title. If you go yes. look it up now. <laughs> word withdrawn. withdrawn oh well i was gonna let her do that thanks a lot ken <laughs> no we, we got the same line of thought there my friend <laughs> i was i was i was skipping i was skipping the punchline but anyway so uh, i'm over here going how did you get the full article wow <laughs> anyway so if you don't mind jessica kind of tell us a little bit about that uh, that story the collaboration and then what happened yeah, so I I had uh, um, so I'm an academic. I write papers. Um, when I finish doing an experiment, and w w you know, you're you're always excited to get something published. If you're a scientist, it's like a really exciting moment in your life. Um, so I'm I'm in that uh, you know I was in that gravy train. So I decided to kind of keep going, even though I wasn't under the umbrella. So I penned two papers. I got them published. Uh, in uh, in an independent type journal. And those were both on VAERS. The first one was just a descriptive analysis. The second one was on pharmacovigilanceness. And the third one uh, that I decided to write was on myocarditis because the signal, it's so striking. Like it's, um, it remains to this day, this dose two uh, massively higher reporting in, in 15 year old boys. It was just like, I have to I have to get this out to the public somehow. But because it's myocarditis and I'm not a cardiologist and and I thought well most people are going to be like what what the hell does she know? And so I thought well, I should get a cardiologist involved. So I asked Peter McCullough. Um I still haven't met him by the way. I just I went on good faith and I was like, "Hey, I have this paper. Would you like to contribute?" And so we became co-authors. He's he's a very very um amazing person. And so we we cleaned it up. We penned it together. We submitted it. It got uh, accepted and uh, it was peer reviewed. It was published. It was on PubMed, immortalized. And we were in the final 
um, stages where the pre-proofs were coming. We'd, you know, sign contract, uh, pay the fees, et cetera. And then um, one morning I remember waking up and I had a message in my inbox and, uh, and Peter had independently had one as well about um, the words temporarily withdrawn written beside the title of my uh, the paper. So I refreshed my browser because I was really excited about like seeing this finally published. And, uh, and sure enough, I refreshed my browser and these words were beside it. And I, I'm, I'm a young scientist, so I didn't know if this was normal. So I wrote everybody I knew and I said, listen, this happened. What's going on? And they're like, Jess, that's not normal. <laughs> uh, something's up. You need to contact the editor and, uh, and the publisher. So I did. Um, and I was just, you know, I was courteous and and uh, and humble. And I, I said, what, what's on the go? You know, how come how come A, this happened and B, we weren't informed? How come we had to find out from uh, other people? And so, yeah, Peter and I talked it over and and uh, and I penned the email, I CC'd him and um, and they wrote back about a day later, they said that they were reconsidering publishing because uh, um, it wasn't an ex um, an invited paper. So Peter, he, he's got, you know, he's published out the yin yang, he's an editor of journals, he knows all the, the you know, the lingo and the this and the that. So he said, no, 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 here, here are a number of examples of papers that were not invited, that were published by you guys, reinstate the journal or, you know, there will be consequences. So they wrote back about a week later, I guess, and um, and they said, so we're not going to publish your paper because we don't have to. That was the reason they gave. Um, there's some subtext in the in the publication notice that says at any point, any point, even if it's the very final moments, um, in the process, we can terminate. Um, so, yeah, I guess they handed back the the rights and the money. I don't know. Peter took it from there, and uh, and that was it. And you know, there was never never any explanation. Um, was it because uh, somebody complained? Was it because something was wrong with the uh, the work? No, nothing like that. And it was funny because. Five days later, I was presenting to the FDA um, this verb pack committee meeting. Um, I was one of many who was giving a three-minute speech um, trying to convince the judges why it's a bad idea to put these mRNA shots into five to 11-year-olds. Mm. So I was like, it's a bad idea because of myocarditis. And here's this paper, you know, that... that was published up until five days ago. Anyway, so I, I made a little of a little bit of a hoopla at that meeting about it. But yeah, it's like um, it burns me every single day because there are millions and millions of kids who've probably been injected with this stuff since then. It was over a year ago. It's going to be almost two years soon, actually. And it's like we have an epidemic. We have an actual epidemic now of myocarditis, heart damage in little people. So it's like how how much of that could have been avoided if that paper had gotten out and and the pediatricians and the parents and and the doctors and and all the other people who who would have had a, an opportunity to read it um who didn't get an opportunity to read. I I mean it's just like you you bastards. It's 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 censorship. There's no other way to put it. It's censorship of science. Like if you have a problem with the work, you you there's there's a process that we go through. You can you can have comments once it's published, or the reviewers can say no, this is garbage or blah blah. blah. There's there's the process that you go through. So it's like. <laughs> It just, it wasn't right. It wasn't right at all. And by the way, I'm just one of like a lot of other people. Most of my colleagues are stuck in the review phase. Like they never got past it. They're going to be there forever. So their papers will never get published. Um, and the other thing is, uh, if, if you if you do want to publish your, your, um, your work that has anything to do with uh, injection injury, you have to go for like low impact journals, for example, and then they also use that against you. 
in the end because it's like ah it's only uh, impact factor like two or something so it's rubbish which is 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 rubbish in and of itself but yeah that was the long answer but um we all know that there's like massive censorship of uh dissenting information let's call it the information that goes against the uh the single-minded narrative um I mean, I just want to know, it gets back to that. What kind of scientists are sitting in a room looking at this and one says, you know, this is really important, even if possibly it's not going to actually pan out like this, we should at least make sure that there's not this process going on. And then somebody else goes, no, why? Because, oh, that's a scientific way. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's exactly what you said. It's like, um, this is the thing that burns me the most. Okay. Because, because we're not even allowed to have a discussion about what might be going on in certain people, we're not able to do the right experiment. Well, we, there are probably labs doing the right experiments, but we don't know about them. But there are so many things that we could have been doing in this massive time frame now. Three years of medical research is a long time, if you ask me, um, for discovery. We could have been doing all of these things that could be actually contributing uh, in a productive way to making people feel better, at least, if they're injured. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, the first step, of course, is just stopping the shots, because clearly if they're damaging people's hearts, you got to stop giving them to people. Uh, and the second thing is, it's like we have to identify um, the the subset of people that's being damaged the most, and why. I mean, there's something there's something different about them, and or uh, there is no difference between people except for the time frame that it takes for the damage to occur, which might have to do with their state of health and immune age at the time of injection and the way they were injected, and how many times they were injected with viable product. Oh my God, when I think about it, there's so many things to consider that just were brushed under the rug, like not considered. Um, So some of the parameters that you even mentioned, I don't remember how many you said is 51 or 53 uh, that somebody gets entered into VAERS. I think that even beyond age and the demographic stuff, they'll also be entered by uh, obviously what type of shot, who the manufacturer is and lot number. And I think that I had read somewhere that you had made some reference that even the, the manufacturing process itself should be questioned because of the variability in what's happening with adverse events in certain lots versus others. Could you kind of explain that a little bit? Um, yeah. So first of all, Vaxlot data in VAERS is bad. And I think that's by design as well. Like it's it, the percentage of people who actually have correctly entered Vaxlots is, is low. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's not what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, there are two things, um, that I'd like to mention in, in, um, in response to that there's percent RNA integrity, which is um, like you're supposed to like in a perfect world, you're supposed to have full length spike template, right? Uh, that would be 100% RNA integrity, which you'll, you're never going to get in reality. That that would be like a uh, a unicorn universe. Um, in which case, when it was translated, you would get you know the three pronged pre fusion spike, um, which may or may not be good. Um, so what we're getting in reality in the commercial batches, the ones that are going into people's arms, according to a study done on four of them, is uh, about 55% RNA integrity. So what that means is you have about half of what you're meant to have. So, and not only that, you you have, um, they're not testing her vial I suppose because there are too many vials or I don't know how frequently they're testing or if they're doing it at all, the percent RNA integrity. So they don't know 
what's being injected into people on an individual basis. And therefore, we have no way to predict what that person's cells are actually translating. Are they getting tiny fragments of proteins? Are they getting sort of full-length spike protein? And then the question becomes, what the hell is the effect of that going to be? Because there's a whole lot of talk of prionogenic properties, like causing other proteins to misfold. There's also amyloidogenic peptides in the spike protein, apparently. Mm. Are we getting those being translated? Um, there's that. And then there's the um, contamination issue, which is different as part of the production process of the mRNA itself, like before it gets into the vial, um, you have to make lots of mRNA. So you start with a circular DNA and you, you make it up uh, lots and lots and lots of it in E. coli bacteria. And then you, you, um, you do the, uh, I'm, I'm losing the IVT, the in vitro. No, yeah, sorry, I'm losing the word in vitro transcription. <laughs> And then you um, you linearize and then you purify. So the end product is supposed to be a pure mRNA product that's going to be used um, to get packaged in the uh, the lipid nanoparticles for use in you know the injection. What a colleague of mine has recently discovered is um, double stranded DNA contamination in the vials. Now, what that indicates is that um, the production process mm -hmm. is not being carried out with good manufacturing uh, practices. If this DNA, the circular DNA, is getting through the production line into the vials, which it is, he 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 found these in in all the vials that he tested. It's also possible that we're getting lipopolysaccharide contamination, which is an endotoxin produced by E. coli bacteria. They always test for that when you use those bacteria in this kind of system. And funnily enough, the most recent document that I've seen uh, let, let out by spikebacks has the, um, the endotoxin uh, measurements, like they have this, 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 and endotoxin is here, but it's redacted the endotoxin levels. And I'm like, this isn't proprietary. This is a test result. You have to, you have to disclose that. Right. So again, I'm like, how are they getting away with this? You can't not disclose what levels of endotoxin you found. You can't do that. If it's under, then great. If it's over, what, what the hell? Like, what are we doing here? Um, so anyway, there, there are these two facets that can easily be visualized to contribute to um, adverse event occurrences. In, in the context of LPS, we're going to see uh, toxic shock syndrome and, and anaphylaxis. And we do see a lot of anaphylaxis reports um, in VARES, and we hear about them too. And a lot of people are thinking, well, that must be the polyethylene glycol, in, in the lipid nanoparticles that's inducing the anaphylaxis, and it probably is in some people, but what if it's also LPS? So none of these questions are being asked, except by a few of us, and they're definitely not being answered. And I think that if most people, all this mRNA crap aside, even though we really shouldn't say that, if most people knew that there was a potential for contamination in the product that was injected into them repeatedly in some cases, they would be mortified and they would want answers and they would want some kind of compensation, would they not? Well, yeah. not only that, weren't you able to kind of discover that the acceptance standard itself had been moved specifically around, yeah, yeah these vaccines? The percent RNA integrity, yeah. This is fascinating. I did not know about that. So when we had Dr. Robert Malone on, he did discuss the DNA and that they have sequenced it and that it appears it's coming. They even had some simian virus in that DNA, which is an oncovirus. That's a whole separate discussion. But when you just brought well, up I the L that. what's that? I know I know all about that. It's not actually the simian uh, virus. It's the it's the simian virus uh, 40 promoter and enhancer. So these mm. are um these are components of the SV40 uh, 
which we're still looking at it. They're not technically supposed to be associated with cancers, but we don't know. But look, here's here's the most important point about that. The released uh, expression vectors by Pfizer, it's in a document. I have it. Lots of us have it. Um, this is this is the circular DNA that they use as the, you know, the template to make the mRNA. Um, the disclosed promoter is a T7 promoter. The one that Kevin found in the um, Moderna and Pfizer products is this, the SV40. Now, the, the T7 promoter is for prokaryotes, and the SV40 is for eukaryotes, which are you know used in mammalian cells. Also, he found in the Janssen product, the CMB promoter, which is also for mammalian cells. So without going any, into any detail, which I'm, I don't want to do anyway, because it's not my expertise, is we, we just have to ask the simple question, why the hell are you disclosing this if this is what's in them? Yeah. You have to tell people that because there could be really serious implications for transcription. It's, yeah, anyway, it's, wow. um, again, <laughs> yeah. So we had at the meeting that we were just at, there was a lecture given. And when you brought up the LPS, so in my world in gastroenterology, when we deal with bacterial overgrowth and leaky gut, that is the reaction to the lipopolysaccharide of the bacteria. And if that's going in there, the data that they presented is that when you do have gut, when your gut integrity is compromised and you have these spike proteins floating around, apparently they have an affinity to bind to the LPS, which makes them more clottable or it, it makes it more inflammatory. It's a larger inflammatory response. So here I am thinking of this person getting his fourth booster and that one has lps in it you're just going to set off this this yeah. incredible you know uh, spike protein plus lps response it's horrifying when you think about it <laughs> it's, like, it's not funny but you know uh, sometimes nervous laughter is all i can manage i yeah, yeah. i mean it is it just keeps getting thicker and thicker well, Jessica, I really appreciate you taking time to kind of explain your approach to VAERS, why this data is critically important, and really putting context around it. I think that for almost everyone, if you're not really good at seeing patterns and understanding how to do a true analysis as it pertains to you as a healthcare provider or even as a patient, it can just be quite overwhelming. And it's really because of people like you, because quite frankly, the manufacturers aren't doing the job that they are supposed to do. And I'm, I'm super appreciative for, for you and, and people just like you who've, who've dived, dove, dove, divin, divin, you've divin. Yeah. 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 What is the, what is the Canadian word for, for, for past diving? Divin. I don't divin. know. I, I did him into my hey, head, but it's not dove. I, I think. I do want to veer off course a little bit and give you a case study so that maybe you could make some sense of it regarding testing, specifically PCR testing. Okay. So, um, I have, I have, I have a good friend that he wanted to take his family to Panama to surf and they went to Panama and they had a great surfing trip and everybody was perfect and they were outside the whole time. And, um, they came back to the airport and they couldn't get on their flight back to the United States without a negative COVID test. So they did a, a PCR test, PCR test, or was it you know, rapid PCR test? Oh, it was like, it, it was, it was a rapid PCR test and a very healthy, asymptomatic young 16 year old male was then said he was positive, And then the Panamanian police pulled up in a paddy wagon and quarantined him in a hotel for two weeks, no luggage, because the luggage was already on the plane. How in the world could that happen with such a fantastic modern medicine test? So I can let my friend know what happened so he doesn't. All right. So this is my best uh, explanation, okay? Um, it really depends. Okay, first of all, PCR is not a test. PCR is an amplification method of DNA. Um, depending on what primers you use, which are the little sticky guys that you know, attach and zip and, you know, end up helping the amplification of the DNA piece fragment that you're amplifying, um, you're, you're going to get something. 
if you pick primers, one set of primers, let's say, that uh, will will stick to, let's just, for example, say a number of different fragments of DNA that come from many representative samples, uh, even viruses, coronaviruses, because there are four cold viruses that are coronaviruses. You can get... Um, you, you, I, let's just say, I can see it would be very easy if you had the wrong primers, one set, let's just say, you didn't even have two sets for, ver for a better verification. You had one set amplifying one tiny fragment of DNA that could be, um, you know, from anything. And boom, you, you're calling it a positive test and you're, you're putting someone in a cop car and take, it's just so mind blowing to me. I mean, sure somebody is. has tested uh, fruit and gotten a positive, you know, result on on one of these things. Really? It, it's so, <laughs> yes, yes. Somebody tested Tang in, a, I think it was a TikTok video, and got a positive a little stripe every single time. I mean, it, it's it's really to to me, it's a joke. Did they quarantine um, that Tang for two weeks in a Panamanian <laughs> hotel? For sure, and they quarantined people drank the tang so <laughs> yeah it, it's the, it, listen i i feel very bad for that person and to be honest with you i'm not surprised because that's precisely what would prevent me from ever going near a country that had anything like that it, it, like currently imposed like if if you're gonna think about forcing me to do anything that is retarded, pardon my language, I will not do it. I, I will I will not travel to your country. I won't take that surf trip. I, I, I'm not judging anyone else. It's just, this is one of the things that makes me really mad because all of this is baseless. If people actually knew that these, these PCR amplification reactions are not representative of anything having to do with the sick person, then they would be floored. As soon as they hear PCR test and they hear positive, they're they're just key. They're just signal words that say, "Oh my God!" Like they causes the inner brain to freak out, and all of a sudden, everyone has to like, you know, isolate themselves. And it's like it's such BS. Imagine, imagine if they did if and when. Let's put it that way. They started doing this testing for for cold viruses and every time a a person had uh, a cold virus amplification that they would uh, have to be quarantined and here's the thing these are just picking up fragments of dna so maybe you did have a cold you know a month ago and you're still carrying frag of course you're going to have fragments of the residual particle or whatever it's like of course you are, but you're not sick anymore. You're definitely not contagious. And I mean, the whole thing is so dumb to me. It's so dumb. It's, I agree. it's been the, the source of the whole crazed pandemic. It's a pandemic of testing. Yeah. Nothing more. Yeah. That's crazy. What do you think about that case, Eric? It just sounds really similar to, to what my son went through, but you must've been talking about somebody else because mine was 17. So, oh yeah, I guess I was wrong. No, this happened to Eric. Yeah, this happened to my son. He was seventeen, and he was stuck there. So, yep. Yeah. How was how did he do with it? Was he really mad, or did he was he scared? Like, what did it do to him? Scared? No. Bored uh, immensely after being trapped in a hotel room, not a hotel, a hotel room for and fourteen days. Did he have days. to pay for that? No, no. Uh, this was almost two years ago. Uh, Panama covered all of those expenses, but I did have to ship some clothing items, bed sheets, pillow covers, all kinds of stuff like that when I returned back. And um, so, yeah, it was. So he had to get on the flight yeah. where his son and his wife were taken in a paddy wagon like prisoners there. And then he was smart enough that he had the Uber driver, his phone number. So he ended up finding the Uber driver and having him drive around Panama and take stuff to them because they had nothing. Yeah. They'd he, taken all their luggage and everything. They had nothing. It's crazy. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Venmoed him some money so that he could go shop for us. And then he took it to the front desk so they could send some stuff up and we ship stuff from here. So he so, couldn't even surf because he was, he had to stay in that room. Yeah. He couldn't surf. He could, he could look out the window 
<laughs> as and long as it was closed. Yeah. So he didn't. So he didn't spread COVID out in the twelfth yeah. floor of a. Yeah, they would. They would. Um, they would send up uh, food, DoorDash food, or whatever they happened to order uh, in the elevator, and they would ring your room. And, I'm, and if I'm mistelling it, Mac, I'm sorry, but this is how I remember it. But um, they would they would ring his room on when they were permitted to go into the hallway to walk down for a completely empty elevator to open up, and then their parcel or food or whatever would be sitting on the floor of the elevator, and then they were given, you know, a limited amount of time to grab whatever the stuff was and return to the room and, and hang out. You and they just believe anyone, anyone acted that way. It's I, I still can't believe it because you know what, when they announce the next thing, everyone's going to act the same again. What was even, what was even more uh, confusing for him, for him, I guess at first, but they, you know, they, he would question a little bit to some of the authorities there, you know, why this and, and, and why that? And then what he was really told when we were in Panama is, well, a lot of these directions come from the U.S. and the WHO, which was. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Even a little bit. Why more. are you following them? Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. does this make sense to you guys? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just would have been saying that at the top of my lungs for two weeks straight. I yeah. seriously would have been it was, worse. It, person ever <laughs> it, it was it was rather bizarre well thanks ken for uh for highlighting that that was a lot of fun and <laughs> I've, I've heard her discuss pcr she yeah. seems to be an expert yeah, actually you throw at her so it's I actually wanted... a great example um no i'm not an, i'm not an expert it's just that uh, i've done a lot of pcr and it's it's Unless you're like following it up with sequencing and using like the right primer sets, which I know that they're not in a lot of places. I don't know about Panama. I'll have to check. But um, you, you you can't say that it's something specific without follow up. And not only that, but it's just the um, it's like everything else that we saw. It's the degree of um prevalence i guess is the right word like mm -hmm. it was not about making sure people were not transmitting some deadly disease um i i, I don't know how to put this like in the right words it's just it, the whole thing was so extreme um just like the lockdowns were and it's like do you guys actually think that these are good methodologies to stop, a, a, you know, a, a, a deadly virus from propagating? Like, have you have you listened to anybody who has expertise in virology or epidemiology or vaccinology or immunology? Have you have you consulted with anyone who knows anything about these subject matters? Because if you have, you wouldn't be going around. You wouldn't be going through this. This is not about that. This is something else. Mm -hmm. Totally and agree. So, yeah, I'm not even sure they weren't like collecting DNA samples, and that was the the primary goal for this. Because uh, I still haven't wrapped my head around that brain bleeding thing that they were doing to people. Correct. Um, do you, yeah. Do you guys have any comment on that or any like insights? Like what I've, the hell that was? I've, I I don't know. Uh, I know that uh, when I went to. I did go down to that meeting in Cabo and that was part of my return was to do it that way. And then I think on that trip to Panama, those are the only two times I've had to do a nasal swab. Dude, when they first started doing those, like it, like at the hospital, when you had it done, they would have somebody that would literally roto rooter the back of your nose and it was hurt and it was awful and you're gagging. And but it's so contagious. Like why do they have to yeah. go root root routing your brain? Why yeah, don't they just take a go in the mouth and they you know these are these are highly trained professionals that were sitting in a parking lot as cars drove by <laughs> jabbing them you know just straight through and then next thing you know they're gonna have those little like blow darts like <laughs> yeah well and then it's funny because i was in where was i where was i where was i um parking oh, lot i was in i was in croatia and i needed a <laughs> negative test to come back to the u.s and Croatia had quit testing. So it was like hard for me to find oh, yeah. someplace. And the, the nurse there was cool because she basically had she basically had the thing. She's like, OK, like here. Here's the thing. She's like, OK, 
I'm like, well, you missed my nose. She's like, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they thought it was just hilarious. They're like, no, you're getting out of Croatia. Get out. Uh, that's right. That's right. Well, Jessica, thank you so much. This is going to conclude our regular portion of this episode. Jessica Rose, uh, PhD. Thank you so much for the breakdown again. And, um, uh, and if you are a member of the Gut Check Project Raw, stay tuned because we've got some cool follow-up questions with Jessica. This concludes the free portion of the Gut Check Project. For full access to the raw interviews, just visit gutcheckproject.com. Click the GCP Raw circle and use code HERO for a free month, plus all of the access with being a supporter of the Gut Check Project. Please share this episode with your friends and thank you for being a part of the Gut Check Project.